0: Scripture teaches God made man in his own image, affirms the sanctity and personhood of all human life from conception, and stands clearly opposed to abortion.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington, Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will begin a new four-part series titled The Biblical View of Abortion. The issue of abortion continues to be front and center in our culture today, from politics to corporations and businesses, and even with family and friends. Conversations about abortion are commonplace. Therefore, we as Christians must be adequately equipped with the Word of God to respond in a God-honoring manner. The Church cannot let the thinking of the culture or pressure from society influence its beliefs and practices. Scripture is the final authority, and it is the standard by which all things should be compared. If you claim to be a Christian today, are you thinking biblically about the issue of abortion? Well, Tom, this issue has really become a huge topic of discussion in the local church. Why must Christians think biblically about abortion?
0: Before I answer that, let me first of all speak to you from my heart if you have had an abortion, or maybe you've encouraged others to have one, or maybe you've publicly defended the concept of abortion, or perhaps you've even performed or helped with abortions. You need to know that biblically, Abortion is an awful sin, but at the same time, you need to know that there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you will repent from that sin and you will turn to Christ, you can be forgiven of that sin and all other sins today. And that's my prayer for you. But beyond that, as Christians, we must think biblically about this issue of abortion because it matters to God. And if it matters to Him, then it must matter to us as well. Let's discover what the scripture has to say.
1: Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed.
0: I want to address the issue of abortion. Our Supreme Court issued a decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health overturning the longstanding position of the Supreme Court and the law of the land. And of course, that dates back, as you know, to 1973, It was then that the Supreme Court decided in Roe v. Wade that our Constitution guarantees the right to an abortion. In light of the Supreme Court's decision, it was said, therefore, that individual states could not regulate abortion. In the first trimester, abortions were not to be restricted in any way. In the second trimester, only to protect a woman's health. And in the third trimester, abortion was only to be allowed if necessary for the woman's life and health. In a case that came shortly thereafter, the court defined health, unfortunately, as including emotional, psychological, family health, and general well-being. That decision essentially ensured abortion on demand. The key part of the decision in Roe v. Wade, perhaps you've read it, was that the unborn only have potential life until viability, that is, until they can survive outside the womb. It's interesting that the anonymous Jane Roe in Roe vs. Wade was a woman named Norma McCorvey. Norma McCorvey eventually became a Christian, profoundly regretted her part in the Roe v. Wade decision and even tried until her death in 2017 to get the decision overturned. When we think about the decision in 1973 and even the most recent decision, it's important for us to remember that human judges don't ultimately determine what is morally right and wrong. Theirs is a delegated authority. They sit in the place of God, hearing the affairs of man and making decisions on that basis. Their decisions are supposed to be based on law and ultimately on God's law, the one who gives them life and has placed them in that place of delegated authority. Moses reminds us that in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, talking about the judges of Israel, he says, I charged your judges at that time saying, hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment, you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, listen to this, for the judgment is God's. What Moses was telling those human judges is that they sat as it were, in the place of God, presiding over the affairs of man, and they were to make that decision as though it were God's decision and not theirs. So what is on the heart of God when it comes to human justice? I want you to turn with me as we begin this morning to Psalm Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Here's the heart of God when it comes to justice being meted out in a land. Psalm 82.1, God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked." And he goes on as this psalm ends in verse 8 to say that God is not merely talking about what happens in Israel, He is the judge of the earth who possesses all the nations. God will hold every human judge, including every judge in our land, the Supreme Court justices included, accountable for the decisions they make. And one of the great concerns of His heart is for those who have no voice. For those who are the weak, the afflicted, the the needy, those whose justice is easily perverted, God says somebody needs to speak for them, and judges need to be especially sensitive to their needs and rights. As we think about the issue of abortion, the key question for us as believers, especially in decisions with moral implications is what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? That's what I want us to unpack in the next two weeks, today and next Sunday. But let me start with a summary of what we're going to discover. So I'm going to give you the punchline, and then we're going to watch it unfold. Here's what we will learn together. Scripture teaches God made man in His own image Affirms the sanctity and personhood of all human life from conception and stands clearly opposed to abortion. Let me read that again. Scripture teaches God made man in his own image, affirms the sanctity and personhood of all human life from conception, and stands clearly opposed to abortion. Now, as we begin this morning, Let me first of all just speak from my heart directly to those of you in our church family who have had abortions, or perhaps you have encouraged others to have abortions. Maybe you have publicly defended the concept of abortion, or perhaps you have even performed some abortions. Let me speak to you if you fall into any of those categories. As we will learn this week and next, abortion is an awful sin. And we're not going to ignore that reality. Depending on what you knew when you participated in that abortion, one of two things is true. Either you committed an act of murder if you knew that was a life that you were taking, or if you didn't know that because you'd believed the propaganda of the world around you, then you would be guilty criminally of negligent homicide. Those are horrible sins, but they are not unforgivable sins. In fact, If you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, let me say that again, if you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, God credited all of your sins, including the sin of abortion, to Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jesus endured all that God's justice required to be paid for that sin, Jesus paid it all. God has forgiven you now and forever for the sin of abortion. I love the way Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 118, "'Come now, let us reason together,' says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool.'" If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, today God sees you just as righteous in protecting and defending innocent life as His own Son is. You wear His righteousness. So as I deal with this topic, you don't need to feel any guilt. Your guilt and your sin is gone forever, paid for by the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. At the same time, it is important for all of us as God's people to understand what the Bible says about this sin, and that's what we need to do together. There are several crucial facts that we need to understand about this issue of abortion. So let's begin with the first crucial fact, the functional definitions. What is it that we're really talking about? I'll use several words, let me define them. First of all, the word embryo, Webster defines embryo as the developing human individual from the time of implantation to the end of the eighth week after conception, so until eight weeks an embryo, fetus. The word fetus is a developing human, Webster says, from usually two months after conception to birth. So, embryo through eight weeks, and then thereafter the term fetus. It's also a baby, as I'll use that, as, uh, that description as well. It, it is all these things, the, the child is all these things. Now, abortion is the expulsion of the human embryo or fetus. This word, abortion, by the way, is almost never used of the natural expulsion of an embryo or fetus. Our word for that is miscarriage. Webster specifically defines abortion in this sense like this, it is the induced expulsion of a human fetus, we could add, an embryo. Megan Best in her book Fearfully and Wonderfully Made defines abortion this way, it is the deliberate ending of a pregnancy so that it does not progress to birth." End quote. That's what we're talking about. There are the functional definitions that we'll be working with. So today when I talk about abortion, that's what I'm talking about. Now the second crucial fact that we need to look at is the historical background. Exactly how has this concept of abortion developed? Let's begin with all of human history. The first historical record of an induced abortion is from the Egyptian Ebers papyrus dated to 1550 B.C., about the time of the Exodus when Moses and the children of Israel left Egypt. That's the first historical record of an induced abortion that we have. The ancient world was actually divided over this issue. For example, in Assyria, the code of Ashura written around 1100 B.C., mandated the death penalty for abortion if a woman got an abortion without her husband's consent. What isn't as clear is what it would have been if she had his consent. But it was really the Greeks who ultimately pioneered legalized abortion. Michael J. Gorman writes, the Greeks enjoy the dubious distinction of being the first in the ancient Near East or Western world positively to advise and even demand abortion in certain cases. Now, this positive view of abortion came from its two great philosophers, Aristotle and Plato, both of whom favored abortion and infanticide, but they favored them only if they were in the interest of the state. It wasn't about a woman's choice, it was about if it was in the interest of the state, then Abortion could be practiced and infanticide. These were the, this was the view of the philosophers of Greece, but the doctors of Greece tended to be opposed to abortion. In fact, the oath of, of Hippocrates reads this way, I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing, Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Similarly, I will not give to a woman a pessary to cause abortion." That's something inserted into the uterus to cause an abortion. Abortion advocates, by the way, argue that this was only in certain cases. But in context, it's clear that it is a sweeping prohibition against assisting abortion. By the way, that's why it's not so surprising that according to the Harvard Medical School, of the U.S. medical schools that still use some form of the Hippocratic Oath, only 2% use the original. I wonder why. When you come to, the, to Roman law, Roman law allowed abortions because they did not consider the fetus a living person. But there were Roman philosophers who disagreed, Cicero and others objected, nevertheless the law remained. Now the methods of abortion in the ancient world were certainly crude. Uh, Here are some of them. A blow to the womb, vigorous movement, binding the womb tightly to inhibit the growth of the child, drugs that were either drunk are used as pessaries and surgery. One other note that I learned from my review of ancient history, and it's frightening, that is you will discover that in the ancient world, if abortion was legal, so was infanticide. The Jews never approved of abortion, and, and of course, the early Christian church was unanimously opposed to it, as we'll see next week. So that's sort of an overview of history, a very brief one. What about American history? This is so important because what you will read in the news sources you read, what you will read in the history books today is revisionist history about the view of abortion, the legal view of abortion. You will read that abortion has always been accepted and practiced in both Britain under common law and in America. That is today's revisionist history. At, but it is revisionist history. In 2006, Villanova law professor Joseph W. Della Pena wrote a massive book entitled Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History. By the way, if you want to get a, a, an idea of where he was coming from, he also wrote an amicus brief with the Supreme Court in this latest Dobbs case. You can read it on the Supreme Court's website. It's very interesting. For the record, Della Penna is not a Catholic, although he went to or taught at a Catholic school, and he supports abortion. So he's not anti-abortion, but he's an attorney taking issue with the revisionist history about what the law said through British and American history. So in his extremely well-documented book, in fact, I think there's some 8,500 footnotes, he writes this, quote, Anglo-American law, that is British common law and American law, has always treated abortion as a serious crime, generally even including early in pregnancy, presenting evidence of prosecutions and even executions occurring as long as 800 years ago in England, and less serious punishments in colonial America. The reasons provided for those prosecutions and penalties consistently focused on protecting the life of the unborn child. This unbroken tradition tends to refute the claims that unborn children have not been treated as persons in our law or as persons under the Constitution of the United States. The tradition of treating abortion as a crime was unbroken through nearly 800 years of English and American history until the reform movement of the later 20th century," end quote. Again, if you want to understand how the revisionist history has come to pass, understand this, what Justice Blackman in Roe v. Wade quoted, to prove that abortion had a positive history in America was, a, was from a book written by a man named Means in the 1960s, a man who worked for a pro-abortion organization who wrote the history at that time. And this attorney who's pro-abortion says that's all revisionist history. It's, it's fabricated. It's just not the truth. Now, this position against abortion Weakened some in the early 1800s, but then shifted back in the mid-1800s. In the 1860s, legislators, doctors, and the American Medical Association argued for tightening the laws to make sure that in every state, abortion was a crime. By 1900, abortion was a felony in every state. So when did the modern push for abortion begin? It began in the 1920s with the feminist movement. One leader in that movement, Stella Brown, promoted abortion as a key element of women's emancipation. Margaret Sanger founded the American Birth Control League in 1921, and in 1942 it became Planned Parenthood, which is still very much alive and with us. Sanger was one of the chief architects of the sexual revolution, and she promoted abortion wholeheartedly. This is what she wrote. No woman can call herself free who does not control her own body. You can see how that language has become the language of the pro-abortion movement today. Now, you might say, well, isn't there some truth to that? Of course there's some truth to that. But listen to another quote that makes clear what she means. The most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it, end quote. She also supported eugenics, and some of you are very much aware of that. Now, fast forward as, as feminism takes hold, fast forward to the 1960s. And, of course, in the 1960s, that turbulent period, you had the sexual revolution. And out of the sexual revolution, understandably, the pro-abortion movement became increasingly widespread. However, listen carefully. Some of you don't understand this. If you're younger, you, you don't understand this reality. Until 1973, until the decision of Roe v. Wade… Until that decision was made, 30 of our states prohibited abortion without any exception. Sixteen states prohibited it except in special circumstances, and that varied, rape, incest, and the life of the mother. Only four states of the 50 allowed abortions beyond that. So that's a, a brief history in the United States. Let's move on to a third crucial fact that we need to understand about it, and that is the current expression. What is abortion like now? Well, the abortion industry today is big business. One of the leading market research firms says, quote, the market size measured by revenue of the family planning and abortion clinics industry is $3.7 billion in 2022, end quote. 3.7 billion dollars. It is big business with really expensive paid lobbyists and a lot of PR money that is spent in campaigns across the country to promote their agenda. Now the reason that it's that large and that profitable is because of the sheer scope of abortion. And this is unthinkable, but since 1973, there have been 63 million abortions in the United States. 63 million. Now, that's a huge number and one our brains don't process very well, so let me give you some perspective. 63 million abortions. 1 million Americans, 1 million Americans died in the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War combined. 1 million died in all of our wars, 63 million abortions. Let me give you another perspective. The population of the six largest U.S. metropolitan areas, that's New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago. DFW, Houston, and Washington, D.C., the population of those metro centers, not city limits but metro centers, the population is 62 million, one million less than the number of children that have died in abortion. In other words, you'd have to kill every person in Metro, New York, L.A., Chicago, DFW, Houston, and Washington, D.C. to equal the number of abortions that have happened since Roe v. Wade. It is massive in its scope. So, what about the demographics of abortion? Now, just so you know I'm not creating a straw man, let me tell you that I'm going to quote statistics that come from those who are pro-abortion. There are two organizations that track abortion data, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and the Guttmacher Institute, a pro-abortion research organization that was founded in 1968 as a subsidiary of Planned Parenthood. Both of them are pro-abortion. The CDC compiles its figures from health agencies in most states. The Guttmacher Institute compiles its figures directly from providers of abortion.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled The Biblical View of Abortion – Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit the thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's the WordUnleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.